So what we're going to be doing this Christmas season is something that the vast majority of Americans will be doing if you haven't already done it. You're going to trim a tree. You're going to buy some gifts and you're going to give some gifts. You're going to attend some parties and you're going to be with family. And then if you're a real man, you're going to watch some football. Those are the things that we do around Christmas and New Year's. And I've been doing it for almost 50 years. We don't need to talk about that. Again, I don't like that. But almost 50 years, I, I've been attending Christmas parties and trimming trees and doing the family stuff. And then, as many of you know, a little bit over 30 years ago, I became a Christian. I didn't grow up in a very religious home. I didn't grow up in a Christian home in the sense of at least evangelical Christianity. And so when somebody explained to me the gospel, what we're celebrating this type of time of year, the birth of Jesus Christ, for various reasons that made sense to me, how I can enter into a relationship with God through accepting Jesus, and I became a Christian. But my journey was not done there, not nearly at all. It, because you see, it wasn't until a decade or two after that that I discovered what I would label the real meaning of Christmas. In other words, beyond trees, beyond parties, beyond family, and, and beyond gift giving, and even beyond just being able to say Christmas is about Jesus' birth, it is something about Christmas, there's a real meaning behind Christmas that I think has everything to do with the gritty nature of our daily lives. Something that God did 2,000 years ago that he wants to continually repeat on a spiritual and relational level in your life, in my life today, that makes all the difference. And I want to show you this this morning as we enter into this very holy, wonderful time called Christmas. And so we're going to be taking a look at a Christmas story that almost every one of you are familiar with. It's very well known in America. It's Luke chapter 2, the, the Christmas story. Uh, the trip to Bethlehem, no room in the end, a birth in a manger, the shepherds coming to visit and glorifying and praising God. And yet as we take a fresh look at this story today, I want to show you an unusual twist on it that, that I think is contained clearly in the text. It's Luke's main point in telling us the story the way that he does. But so many people miss it and they miss out on what Christmas is really about. So let me give you the main point right up front just so that we're not left wondering what I'm getting at here. So look up on the screen. This is it. Here's the meaning of Christmas. Jesus was born into our mess. That's what Christmas really is. That's the message I'm going to challenge you to take out into Scottsdale, Mesa, Tempe, Glendale, wherever you're from or wherever you might travel this Christmas season. That What Christmas is about from a biblical perspective is that God decided to enter into our mess and do something that only he can do. And so God entered into this world in that person, Jesus, into a dank, smelly place surrounded by fearful parents, confused shepherds, palace guards on the prowl out to kill him. All of this in relative obscurity, which means that God doesn't mind sending his son into very messy places. He did so 2,000 years ago, and I'm going to submit to you today that he likes to still do this. Now, to see the, all of this, and in particular the implications of this, I ask you to turn to Luke chapter 2. So we're going to park in front of this the rest of our time this morning. So hopefully you have your own Bible, or if not, there's one in the pew rack in front of you, or cactus, or venue. You can maybe look on with somebody else. 
And if not, look up here on the screen on your outline. But let's get this in front of us. And notice with me what it says in the first five verses of this Christmas story that we're all familiar with. Let me read it for you. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house, of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, what's most interesting about these first five verses here, and you got to dial into this, is the fact that Luke, the author here, inspired by the Holy Spirit, takes five full verses to lead up to the birth of Jesus. And you and I got to ask the question, why? I mean, words were precious back then. They were writing on parchment leaves. They didn't have word processors. processors. So why did he take full five verses with all this detail to tell us about the birth of Jesus. And though some commentators, Bible experts, will say it's because they had to show how Jesus got from Nazareth in the north down to Bethlehem where he would be born, how Joseph and Mary got there, it still doesn't answer the question, why didn't they just say that? Why didn't they just say he went from Nazareth down to Bethlehem where prophecy said he would be born? Why all the detail? And what many Bible experts point out, and I believe is the main reason, is because Luke wanted to show us the very messy economic and political conditions that Jesus entered into. And so this is point one on your outline, that God enters into our societal mess. This is what was happening 2,000 years ago. God entered into a mess in Bethlehem that very first Christmas night. And so very quickly, let me show you uh, how this plays out. You'll notice in verse 1 that it mentions the leader of the Roman Empire at that time, Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus. Why mention his name? Here's what you need to know about this guy. He was a power-hungry, self-absorbed, tyrannical ruler if there ever was one. We know this from the history books. I mean, before the time of Jesus, this guy was consolidating all of his power in Rome at that time by defeating the enemies who had assassinated his uncle Julius. And then he embarked on a lengthy campaign to, to rid the Roman Empire of all of its enemies, both inside and outside. And this guy, by 31 BC, had brought peace to the whole Roman Empire and had consolidated all of the control under him and yet his name, birth name, was not Caesar Augustus. His actual name was Caius Octavius. And so you say, well, why did he call himself Caesar Augustus? That's an interesting story. The word Augustus is a title derived from the religious word augur, which means supreme deity. The most powerful, holy, revered one in all the universe. It would be like today, you and me saying, I don't want to be called Jamie, I want to be called God. And you'd say, you're an idiot. But no one said that to this guy back then. No one would call himself God. This guy calls himself God. And he even went on to have statues of himself erected. He made special holy days to himself. And get this, he even referred to himself as the savior of the world who brought good news. 
Kind of sounds like somebody else we know, right? Jesus. I I mean, in short, Augustus was a power-hungry, self-absorbed ruler, being accountable to no one, obsessed with always having more. That's why Luke mentions his name. It was not a very positive thing to mention. Now, then we have to ask ourselves, well, why did he mention this registration, which is basically a census? Why did he mention three times this census that was going on? It's interesting. If our government today does a census, many times it's for very positive reasons, right? We do it to understand what's happening in our culture so that we can help more people. But we do it to understand who's rich and who's poor and who needs help and who doesn't and what are the needs of culture. (laughs) But back then, they didn't do censuses for any of that reason at all. The only reason they did a census in the Roman Empire was to find out how many kids you had, who was from where, so that they could levy more taxes. We know that for a fact. So the fact that Mary and Joseph had to go from their home up in Nazareth, 90 miles from their original home in Bethlehem, so from like Flagstaff or Sedona down to here, the fact that they had to make that trek on a donkey or by foot for four or five days when she was nine months pregnant only so that Caesar could make a good head count of who's now in the nation so that he could tax more people who were already taxed too much. That's the picture that Luke wants us to have. And so maybe now you can see that these first five verses are trying to set a tone for us that's not supposed to make it feel very sunny. I mean, it's corruption and abuse of power, Caesar Augustus. It's a brutal economic climate, increase in taxes and a census, combined with a tough life to live, 90 miles by foot on a donkey uh, when you're nine months pregnant. These are the societal conditions that the Son of God is going to be born into. This is the picture that Luke is painting. And think about it with me, folks. God is sovereign. He could do anything that he wants. And so he could have made it any other time, any other conditions that his son would be born into. I mean, Jesus, when he would become a man, would be going to Jerusalem for his final days. And he sent word ahead saying, prepare a room for me. Tell so-and-so that I want this room in this place. I command it to be so. And behold, it was done, right? So God could have done that easily when it comes to Jesus's birth but he didn't and you and I need to ask why and here's the answer because God does not only mind that God does not only mind entering into our mess I would submit to you he thrives on it it's what he does that he knows this world has fallen he knows our culture has fallen he knows that we're not going to be able to fix it no matter how hard that we try hasn't 2,000 years of history at least proved that since Jesus and yet he wants to enter smack dab into the middle of our mess announce his presence and do something that we're going to talk about in a minute that only he can do Do something that will change us, if not take away all of our mess, change us and give us a different perspective and a take on reality. You see, this is the Christmas message. Not that God takes away all of our mess. Jesus didn't come to rehab Jerusalem because Jerusalem was the same when he left it 33 years later than when he first got there. So that can't be it. But there were a lot of people changed in Jerusalem after Jesus left. Amen? 
Let's take another run at that. There were a lot of people that were changed in Jerusalem after he left. Amen? Amen. And that's the point. That God enters into the mess and he does something in us that's, in all, that's inarguable and that changes our perspective on everything around us. And that thing that he does is all about peace and hope and joy. The Advent stuff that Troy's been putting before us. And so, again, this is very practical for you and I today. I was thinking this week in my home office, well, I mean, we don't have censuses like that, and we don't have, you know, Caesar Augustus. Okay, we don't have really too much Caesar Augustus. No, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Nope, nope. That was not in my notes, I can attest. No, but we really don't. We don't have anything remotely like that today. But what do we have today? I was thinking about this. What, what, what is consuming CNN and MSNBC and Fox News and ABC? What's consuming that? Well, we talk about a health insurance mess. We talk about an immigration mess. We talk about a still fragile economy. We talk about a lot of foreign affairs issues, Iran and Israel and Benghazi and human trafficking. And you think about it, we have some of the brightest and best people in our American culture devoting their entire lives to trying to fix this mess. We really do on both sides of the aisle. we got a lot of people trying to fix this. And isn't it ironic that in the midst of this mess, and this is not to pick on Congress, it's not, but I don't know if you read this last month, but in November, Congress hit an all-time low approval rating, 9%. In fact, I love the title of the article I read. It said, 10% never looks so good. <laughs> I mean, think about that. I mean, if you guys gave me, don't do this, if you guys gave me a 9% approval rating, I would know that's not a positive thing. I would know that we're in bad trouble as a church. And so here we have all these messes in our culture today. We have a Congress with a 9% approval rating. There's a lot of infighting and disagreement and all of that. One could argue that we have our own mess. And here's the deal, guys. You and I, as carriers of the message of Christmas, have an amazing message to our culture, and that is that God is here. He's still in the midst of our mess, and he's still in the business of altering perspectives and changing hearts and changing the trajectory of a human life from going downhill into decadence to uphill into righteousness, and that we can become the kind of people who are filled with hope and peace and joy even in the midst of our mess, even if not everything changes, because history has shown us it's hard to change societal mess. But God is more bent on changing you and changing me. And over time, that will even deal with the mess. Now, believe it or not, there's a second and maybe even more important thing that a realistic look at the Christmas story teaches us, and that is that God not just enters into our societal mess, but he enters into our personal mess. You're going to like this, our personal mess. And so we read the first five verses. Look at what verses 6 and 7 go on to say. This one, this takes the cake. It says, And while they, Mary and Joseph, were there, Bethlehem, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Some of you have heard my um, frustration with the way that our culture, especially over the last one to two to three hundred years, has interpreted or postured these two verses. I, I talked last week about how we've tamed the cross and made the cross a kind of quaint, nice symbol out of jewelry and all this when that's not quite the biblical perspective that 
God wants us to have, I think we've almost done worse with these two verses. I mean, think about it. When these two verses are read nowadays, don't most of us just kind of go, wow, isn't that nice? I mean, there's no room for him in the inn, and that they found some other place, and they laid him in a manger, and we sing really pretty songs about this. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, away in a manger, no crib for his bed. The little Lord Jesus lays down his sweet head. Or how about this one? Silent night. Holy night, all, say it with me, is calm, all is, you guys sing so well. It's just that it's a lie. It is. I hate to pop your bubble, and I love that song. I really do, Bill. I love it. We're going to sing it Christmas Eve with candles, and I'm going to be there with you, and I'm going to love it, and I'm going to feel good. And yet the whole time I'm going to be thinking, it's just not true. It's, it wasn't a silent night and all was not calm. I mean, that's not what Luke is trying to tell us. Do we all understand that? Think about the words here. There was no place for them in the inn. That's not a positive thing. I mean, I mean, if I go to my hometown, Chagrin Falls, and I walk there, and I'm tired, and Kim's nine months pregnant, and there's no place for me in the inn, and then it begs the obvious question, well, if this is their hometown, then why aren't their relatives taking them in? You ever thought about that? And what a lot of experts suggest, there's no evidence for this, but it makes sense, is that maybe the relatives were a little suspect of this pregnancy that she had. And when they said, well, you don't understand, even though we're not married, it's not us, it's the Holy Spirit, and, you know, he appeared to us in a dream, and, you know, it's God and the Messiah, and, you know, like, they're, oh, okay, you know what, that's okay, we'll just distance ourselves from you. That very well could have been going on. So there's no place for them in the end. For some reason, family isn't taking them in. So they give birth, and it never says where. You ever notice that? It doesn't say where. So your Christmas card will say he was born in a barn or something like that. The only problem is only rich people had barns back then, and so there's no evidence that he was born in a barn. In the second century, they were wrestling with this, and historians in the second century, based on middle-class culture, suggested that the only place Jesus could have been born that had any covering would have been a cave. A dark, dank, spidery, tepid cave. That's where Jesus was probably born. You know, I just, I marvel at this. Some of your grandparents, some of your parents-to-be in Cactus and Venue, some of you are grandparents and parents. And, you know, if your granddaughter or daughter calls you and, and says, you know, I'm, I'm giving birth right now, but we weren't able to make it to the hospital. I'm, I'm in a taxi cab on the 101, and, and I'm about ready to give birth. Pray for me. Your heart's going to flutter, right? Or, or if they're one of those organic couples that wants to have a home birth, you know, and, and you're like thinking, well, we never did that, you know. And, 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 and so they call you and say, the baby's on the way, but don't worry, you got a midwife here and all that. You're still, your heart's kind of fluttering because that's about as bad as it gets in our culture today, right? But can you imagine if your daughter calls you from Bethlehem <laughs> and says, there's just no room in the inn and there's nothing there and, and there's no one to take us in. So we're going to a cave. You'd be freaking out. And by the way, they freaked out about that back then too. And then what commentators point out, and this one really takes a cake. Again, I'm trying to help you see what's going on in these two, two, two verses here. It says that she laid him in a manger. Very much an emphasis on she. 
no midwife, no family to help. Mary had to take the baby that just came out of her, catch her own baby, and place him in a manger. That's not a positive scene. And then it says that she placed him in a, say it with me, manger. Now, you guys look like pretty intelligent people, and many of you come to church on a regular basis. So anybody know what a manger is? Say it if you know what it is. It's a, it's a feeding trough. It's a feeding trough. The, the way that most of our songs today place it, you'd think it was a beautiful bassinet. You would think that it's one of these great cribs because we think, oh, isn't it nice? He was placed in a manger. That's not what Luke is trying to get us to see. He's saying, no, this was a, a probably wood, because that's what middle class people have, feeding trough. And I know some of you just had breakfast and don't want to hear this, but moments before it would have had the big, thick tongue of a cow or donkey, or worse yet, a pig, licking the last bit of scraps out of it, and they're going to place Jesus in that. Maybe there was some hay to soften it, but hardly. You know what the best they had back then? Some families had a burlap-wrapped, like, cradle that they'd put their kids in back then because, you know, that was the best they could do. But, but in this case, Luke wants to make it very clear that it is a manger. And what you simply need to see, folks, and this is the whole point of it, is that it's hardly the scene that many of us have become used to. Luke, in a very real way, is trying to say it was a mess. It was a societal mess, verse 5 verses. It was a personal mess, verses 6 and 7. And his point is, is that God is being born in the midst of their mess. And again, God could have changed any of this. He could have found them a place in the inn. He's God. He could have made the circumstances at any other time than during a census. But he chose not to. And you and I have to ask why. What's the significance of that? Here it is. And that is that instead of changing or even altering their circumstances, God said, better yet, I'm going to show up in the middle of your circumstances and announce my presence and in announcing my presence everything is going to change in you not for you because again they're still a mess but in you where things matter most i'm about to change everything and what does god do this is your take-home point into all of this mess into all of our mess god brings hope and peace that's the christmas message I'm going to read you a portion of the story here in just a minute, but it goes on in this story to talk about the shepherds. Most of you are familiar with it, Cactus and Venue, you are as well. And yet most people don't really fully appreciate the idea that God chose shepherds to be the one to be the first converts to Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? I mean, it would have been better if God chose Pharisees or Sadducees, the religious leaders, because when it says that they glorified and praised God, at least you could picture it. But these shepherds, for anybody reading the story first back then, would have been kind of like the Sopranos today. I mean, these weren't exactly the most righteous people on planet Earth in the first century. They were rough cut. They were burly. They were blue collar. They were the guys that you'd find in bars and places like that. And they're out in their fields tending sheep. And an angel appears to them, and this is where the irony comes in. It's really cool. An angel appears to these tough men, and it says they were sorely afraid. They were fearful. 
And I love it when some people say, well, about what a bunch of wimps. And I'm like, no, trust me, if an angel appeared to you, you'd melt, wouldn't you? I don't care how tough you are, if God shows up on the scene, it's going to change your whole perspective. But the angel says, do not fear, for I bring you good news of great joy for all people. For in the city of David, unto you is born a Savior, Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign unto you that you will find him wrapped in, in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. And again, please dial into this. They probably had some cursory knowledge of Judaism, and they're thinking to themselves, this is the Messiah? <laughs> Found in Bethlehem, lying in a, in a manger? And, and yet, the, the, the shepherds then say, notice that suddenly there was a whole host of heavenly angels praising God and saying, glory to God, and what on earth? Anybody remember? Peace. Peace on earth. So, so the tone's being set that they're to go to Bethlehem and in the presence of Jesus find peace. So they go to Bethlehem. They see this terrible setting. They're aware of the awful political and economic conditions. But it doesn't really matter. Now, no, don't miss this. Because something is changing inside these burly shepherds. In that field, in the midst of the announcement, the angel had put something in their hearts and minds, a seed that was going to all of a sudden sprout up in Bethlehem, and it was the seed of peace in the presence of the Son of God. That even in the midst of the mess, they were about to experience salvation and even peace. So, so look with me how that happens. Look at verses 17 to 20. I told you I'd read you just one last portion from the scripture. It says that when they, the shepherds, saw it, the manger and Jesus, they made known the saying that had been told to them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered. Now pause right there. They wondered. Isn't that interesting? doesn't say they were converted or that they got it all or understood. They wondered, and yet, at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. Now here it is. And the shepherds returned, what? Glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen and has been told to them. See, I think the shepherds were changed. I think the shepherds who were still mired in that messy society, who, who, who had just come out of that messy personal situation that Jesus was born into, who still had their own mess in their lives. I mean, it was a rough world back then, but it makes a point to say that they returned glorifying and praising God. Who does that? Who glorifies and praises God in the midst of mess? Here's who, people who know God, people whose lives have been infiltrated by God, people whose hearts have been touched by God, people who get it who get his grace, get his love, get his truth, and understand that it all comes to them in Jesus. And so why is this so important? Why is it so critical to see the Christmas story as it is like this? Why this unadulterated mess with hope and peace in the midst of it? Here's the simple reality I keep bringing this back to you guys, and that is that God still wants to do this today. He does. He wants to do it in you he wants to do this in everyone around us, and yet he won't do it, as we're going to see in a minute here, unless we believe and receive his son Jesus and stop denying that our lives are a mess. 
Because if you live in denial, you'll never sense your need for a Savior like Jesus. You know, I, I've shared with you guys before, I, I, when I was being called here to Scottsdale Bible Church uh, a few years back, one of the reasons I knew that I would be an okay fit in Scottsdale is because I grew up in a rather upper middle class home outside of Cleveland. My dad was an attorney. We never wanted for very much. Most of my friends and I went to a great high school, one of the tops in the, in the state of Ohio. And, and, and we all went off to great colleges and were well-educated. And then I had a conversion to Christ during my early college years, and he totally changed my life. But, but I get that aspect of American culture. I, I, I get what that is like. And one of the things that I get about a town like Scottsdale or the town that I grew up in is that a lot of people move here or they grow up here uh, trying to think or convince themselves that life is not very messy. So you play a lot of golf, you join a country club, you play tennis, you get into biking, you buy a second home, you, you invest, you, you do a lot of things that are not, any of them are bad, but, but they have the danger attached with them to try to insulate yourself from the harshness of a fallen world. Are you tracking with me so far? But the reality is, is that I have yet to meet anybody who at the end of the day, at some point in their life, or quite frankly, many points in their life, didn't have to deal with quite a mess on their hands. It's just part of living in a fallen world, and you can't escape it. And so here today, or at Cactus and Venue, I'm telling you, some of you right now might have a circumstantial mess on your hands. I mean, maybe things are rough at work, or you got financial problems, or things were going great, and then you went to Mayo or Banner, and you got a terrible diagnosis that's going to change the course of your health life now. Maybe your life is a re relational mess right now. Maybe your marriage is really hurting. That maybe you're at odds with a family member that you never thought you'd be at odds with. Maybe there's an estranged friendship. Maybe your kid's really giving you a run for your money. <laughs> maybe he's after your money. It's a relational mess right now. Life can get messy really fast. Or, or maybe you're having an internal mess. You know, one of the things about upper middle class to middle class culture is that we have more psychologists in American culture than police. Did you know that? We have more psychologists than police in our culture which means that depression, anxiety has been on the rise for the last 50 to 100 years in our modern world, and it has yet to abate. So maybe you're trapped in that. Maybe there's a depression. Maybe you're grieving a loss here today. Christmas is very difficult for those of us who have lost a loved one. You see, I've never met anybody who didn't have some type of mess in their lives. I meet a lot of people who try to pretend that their lives aren't messy, especially in a town like this. And I meet a lot of people who try to pretend that the mess of their lives doesn't really affect them. But in time, eventually, everything is known for what it is. It does come out. And I'm telling you guys, if you haven't realized this already, it's messy. And you guys know as your pastor, I'm convinced Christianity's messy. Because God enters into our mess, and he doesn't always change it. But he does bring himself and he declares himself enough. And that's the message we got to get out there. 
One of the things I get most disappointed about when I listen to Christian radio, and I'm not going to pick on any particular preacher or teacher because some are good, some are not, but whenever I watch Christian television or Christian radio, after about two hours, I just always hear this message. God is going to heal all your diseases. He's going to fix your financial house. He's going to take away your broken marriage, and all your kids are going to walk with God. I, I just hear that. And I sit there and go, well, God might do some of those things because God is a God of healing. He's a God of redemption. He does redeem the years that the locusts have eaten, as the Bible says. <laughs> but for every one story I have of that, I have two where he didn't. For every story of a, of a healing, I got a Job on my hands. I got Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 where he says, I prayed three times for the Lord to take it away from me, and he didn't. I, I have a bunch of those stories. And if you and I don't help people make sense of where is God in the midst of that, then what good is our faith? Because that's where life is. And I'm telling you, the whole message of Christianity, and this is so life-giving to me, and I hope it is for you, is that God says, I'm not always going to take away your mess, but if you invite me in, I'll come into your mess. And I promise you, I am enough. I am enough to give you hope. I am enough to give you peace. I am enough to give you joy. But you got to believe, and you got to take me at my word, and you got to come to me through this little baby who is our hope, and his name is Jesus. And when we come to him on those terms, I'm telling you, our lives will never be the same. I've been uh, emailing back and forth this week with a, a good friend who was one of our elders here when I first came here a few years back. And he since has moved away. And uh, as I've been emailing backward and forth with him on some issues going on in his world, I eventually emailed him yesterday and said, do you mind if I share part of your story with our congregation? Because I think they'll find it very encouraging. And, and he's a wonderful guy. He sent me an email back right away saying, absolutely, you can share anything you want, and you can even share my name. So I'm going to share with you his name. And his name is Jim York. And some of you might know him. He was one of our elders here for when I first came here six years ago. And Jim has had, had quite a journey. He's in his early 50s, but he's really had quite a journey over the last uh, few years, a, a very difficult journey. Uh, when I first moved here, Jim was doing awesome, married to his wife, wife Lara. They had had, uh, you know, 20-some-odd years of a wonderful marriage. They'd seen their two girls in and through college, and one was in the process of getting married, and they were now financially at a point where they could, they'd saved well, and they could start to do some things that those going into retirement love to do. And so what they did is that they bought a huge boat, 60-foot boat, and they parked it in San Diego, and they took two years off of their work. Lara was a defense contractor, and Jim, I don't know what he does, but it's not illegal. He does something to earn a lot of money. And, and, and I can, you know, some of you guys, I ask you what you do, and I just don't get a straight answer, but that's, I don't know. But he does something good. And, and, and so they, they took a two-year trip around the world. And, and we were all excited about it. We were following them on the blog. And about nine months into this trip, they send a kind of a warning signal saying, Lara's got some paralysis. It doesn't look good. We're heading back to the States. So they come back to Atlanta. They do an MRI. And they find out that Lara has stage four advanced brain cancer of the worst sort. And that though they were going to do an operation, it would just prolong by a few months her eventual going home to be with the Lord. So they did the operation, they moved back here to Scottsdale, and we just rallied around them, we loved them, and I have rarely seen somebody go home to be with the Lord like I did Lara. I mean, here she was in her late 40s, longing to see grandkids, um, but her daughters, one still needed to get married, and, and none of them had grandkids yet, 
And yet she was so excited to go be with the Lord. At one point I walked in and she was reading the Bible and I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm studying for the final exam. And, and she knows there's no final exam, but you, you got to love that. And, and she did the most precious thing. She, in anticipating grandchildren she'd never seen, this will touch some of you, she, she put together care packages complete with notes for them and for her two daughters. And she just gave them hope and peace, the same hope and peace that was in her soul through Jesus. And then she, she died a couple years ago and went to be with the Lord. It was a real rough move for Jim. Uh, he was an elder at that time, and so he was in a good place. Our elders take care of each other. We're a community of men. And so we spent a lot of our soul care time praying for Jim and talking and grieving with him. And uh, after a, a year or so, the Lord lifted up Susan, his, his wife. And, and it was really a joy to see them get married. And then they moved to Wisconsin, where they have some roots and it was interesting, when they moved to Wisconsin, they bought a lemon of a house. Some of you have experienced this. I mean, it was just a house that the, the, the owner didn't tell them about, of all the things wrong with it. And they literally had to take this house back down to the studs in order to uh, get it right, get it, get it not be a fire hazard. So that's been very difficult for them over the last year. So I was emailing Jim about that this week, and he kind of shocked me with two things that he said. He said, uh, Dear Jamie, I have to say life has been a little challenging lately. We've been out of our house since the 1st of July, and only now moving back in this weekend following a bunch of renovation issues. And then he says, added to that is a doctor's visit I had yesterday where I found out that I have Parkinson's disease. That's what I said. I said, you're kidding me. I emailed him back right away and said, well, you know, that can be mild or severe. How, how serious is he? He says, pretty moderate. He said, I'm, I'm experiencing some pretty strong symptoms already, and they're doing a new drug regimen on me, and so it's, it, it's a very, very serious thing. And I just thought to myself, Lord, when's it going to end for him? I mean, he lost his wife. He's had this terrible problem with his house. And now he's afflicted with this health disease. He's only in his early 50s. And then I read on. I want you to listen to what he says, because this is Christmas. He says, my thoughts immediately turned to Job chapter 1, verses 20 to 22. I certainly do not compare myself to Job, but I do find great comfort in his assertion that God does what he will for his greater glory, and my understanding is not necessary for that equation to balance. While we might, not, while we might think that life is good or bad at any particular point in time, the reality is, is that God is firmly in control at all times, and that it is our responsibility to worship and bless his name regardless of the circumstances that seem to be either good or bad. And then he personalizes it. He says, for me, my perspective is that nothing has changed in my life except that now God has blessed me with a little bit more knowledge of my struggles than I had yesterday morning. He is still God and still firmly in control of this world and my trajectory through the life that he has blessed me with. The grace that abounds from his heart still covers my life. So my heart remains firmly in the hands of the one who created me for his pleasure, and I will continue to bless his name. Since I still consider you one of my pastors, I wanted you to know this in his service, James. you got to love that, folks. I, I, I sat there with tears in my eyes in my office, and I said, that's peace, that's hope, that's a guy whom God has invaded his life. But don't miss this. In the midst of God invading his life, he didn't change all of his circumstances. He still has a cruddy house. He still lost his wife. And he still has Parkinson's disease. And could God change any one of those scenarios? You bet. 
He's God. And sometimes he does. But many times he does not. Because he knows that his plan B is much better than plan A. His plan B is to give us himself. And in giving us himself through faith in his son Jesus, he says, that is enough for your soul. Because the peace, the joy that I will give you, that allow you to write something like this and really mean it, is exactly what your soul is after. So here's my closing thought for you this morning. Last night my wife uh, heard me give this message at our Saturday night service and I'm always leery of asking Kim what she thinks because Kim is really, really discerning and many times I'm not interested in her discernment because <laughs> it hurts. And there was one Sunday while I was here that I preached my heart out for you guys. And I asked her later, what did you think? And she's a school teacher. And she said, giving a Winnie the Pooh illustration, she said, well, that sermon was like Tigger without the bounce. I thought, ouch, ouch. But she's a truth teller uh, in love. And so that, that's my wife. <laughs> but I felt rugged last night, so I asked her what she thought. And, and she said it was a good sermon. Not great. A good sermon. And, and, and she then said this, and I thought this was really, really good. She said, um, you need to tell them one last thing before they go. And I said, what's that? And it was so good. She said, um, tell them that this is not just for them, but it's for all the lost ones around them that don't get Christmas. And that now that they get it, they got to share it. And I thought, amen. You see, we got a lot of people around us who get trees, they get gifts, they get parties, and they get family. And they might even get, if you asked them a quiz, you know, what's Christmas really like? They might say, well, it's Jesus' birth. But I'm not sure they get that God wants to enter into our mess. <laughs> and that the whole message of Christmas is that God was willing to enter into that mess. And he's been doing it over and over and over again ever since then. But when he does, he brings peace and joy. You've got a lot of people in your life, maybe a kid, maybe a family member, a friend, a neighbor, a service provider, a fellow student. You've got people in your life that need to hear this. You and I are the carriers of that hope. Let's pass it on. Father, I thank you for the great hope that you do give us in Christ. I thank you, Lord, in the midst of a season that for some of us will conjure up a lot of good feelings, as it should, because we've done this over year after year and we love Christmas, that, Lord, we would never, ever lose sight, though, of the original Christmas that Matthew and Luke paint for us, one that was very rugged and gritty and very messy, but that you brought hope and peace into, because that's life. So, Father, I pray that as we ponder this anew and afresh, as Mary did, treasuring these things up in our hearts, that, God, you might help us to see this season anew and afresh, and that we never forget that in the mess of our lives, you are there. And through faith in your son Jesus, we embrace you. And we find peace and joy. So may that be true for us. May that be true for those that we're willing to share this with as well. And we pray this in Christ's name. And we all say together, amen. amen. God bless you. We'll see you Christmas Eve.